surrounded by a thousand enemies. You're alone on this, on this field of battle. And all around you is this, this enemy encampment of a thousand different enemies. And somehow or other, in the course of the battle, you manage to defeat these thousand enemies single-handedly. And imagine yourselves in this situation a thousand different times. Single-handedly overcoming a thousand enemies a thousand times. A very difficult undertaking. The Buddha said that it is easier to conquer these thousand enemies a thousand separate times than to conquer oneself. What we're undertaking is a very, very difficult task. It's not easy to free the mind from greed, from hatred, from delusion. It's the highest, most difficult undertaking that we can do. But it is not impossible. There have been very many people who have conquered those thousand enemies a thousand different times. There have been very many people who have walked the path towards enlightenment with their minds. It is not an impossible task, but a difficult one. And so it should be undertaken with that sense of perseverance and persistence and a sense of the effort required to liberate the mind from, from the defiling factors. We are given some help in overcoming these enemies by people who have done it before us in the sense that they have pointed out to us who the chief enemies are. Right? Our foes are much more powerful when we don't recognize them. When we're able to see who the enemies are and, and when they're arising against us or in us, that very recognition gives us a very great strength in dealing with them. No longer are we fighting in the dark, but the searchlight, a great light has been placed upon these enemies as they're arising. So recognizing them is the very first step in dealing with them and, and overcoming them. There are five great enemies that assail us on this path that rise up to confront us. And unless we deal with them effectively, they are very overpowering. Until we deal with these five enemies, progress on the path towards enlightenment and freedom is very difficult, if not impossible. So they must be dealt with. And the first way of dealing with them is to see them clearly. The first of these enemies that comes is that of sense desire, attachment and clinging to sense pleasure. It's an enemy for several reasons. A mind which is consumed by sense desire, by attachment to the pleasures of the senses, is always kept external, always scattered from object to object, seeking delight in various of the sense objects very unconcentrated, very externalized, very, very restless and scattered, not composed. 
seeking delight in pleasant sights and pleasant sounds and pleasant taste, pleasant odors, pleasant feelings of touch on or in the body. The mind very restless, seeking these kinds, seeking these kinds of sense delights. This externalizing of our energy is a very big hindrance in, in examining the nature of the mind and body. Right? We're not inward. We're not seeing what's happening. We're, we're always drawn outside of ourselves. That's the first reason it's a big enemy. Second reason is that in its very nature, this urge to satisfy our sense, our sense desire, is endless. There is no possible way of satiating our desire for sense pleasures. We enjoy them. As they come, they go away, and the next day again we want to enjoy, and the next day again. There is no end to it. And that's very clear with people who have a great desire to accumulate things. Right? First it's a nice little sports car, and then a color television, and then a bigger car, and a bigger house, and two cars, four televisions. There's no end. This desire for accumulation is an endless process. And the accumulation can be of possessions, it can be of the delight of certain situations, of, of gourmet eating, right? It's an endless process. No way of bringing to complete satisfaction that urge for sense pleasure. So it just, it involves us in a kind of endless wheel, striving for happiness in a situation that can never bring happiness can never bring a lasting happiness. Right? It gives momentary pleasure. Okay, that's the second reason it's a big enemy. It keeps us bound to this wheel of action, incapable of being satisfied. The third, third reason it's a very great enemy, and perhaps the most profound one, is that generally sense desire is connected with the greed factor of mind. Because, because the senses are involved with pleasurable feeling. We enjoy pleasure from, from nice sights and sounds and touch and taste. And an untrained mind is very conditioned to cling to those pleasures, and that clinging is the greed factor. So this kind of grasping at sense pleasure, this involvement in sense desire, if there is not mindfulness involved, very much is cultivating stronger and stronger greed in the mind. Wanting more and more and more. Very difficult to, to detach oneself. It's like that example we gave a few weeks ago of the monkey getting caught in the, in the pitch of tar, in the field of tar. One paw and then the other paw getting stuck in this field of sense pleasure through this greed factor of mind for an untrained mind. So sense desire is a very great enemy. This attachment to sense pleasure. It's not the pleasures themselves. It's our attachment and grasping at them 
which is the enemy, which is the hindrance. The second great enemy is anger, ill will, aversion, annoyance, irritation. That kind of mind which condemns the object or the situation or the person or the state of mind, the condemning action of mind is an expression of, of hatred and anger. It keeps the mind very much on fire. We're burning up when we're angry. Very difficult to see anything clearly at all. It's like our minds are consumed by fire when anger is strong. It's interesting that, that anger and hatred is a more, a more violent, a more passionate hindrance than sense desire, but it is easier to get rid of because it is always unpleasant. Anger is always associated with unpleasant states of mind. And so with a little degree of awareness, we begin to experience that unpleasantness associated with anger and learn to give it up quickly, even though it's very strong and violent. Sense desire is more subtle. It's not so, it's not so, it's not so strong as the hatred and anger, but it can be associated with pleasure, right? So it's very difficult to overcome sense desire and the greed factor. We don't like to give up our attachment to pleasure. It's a very subtle, very subtle enemy. Sense desire, hatred. The third great enemy is sloth and torpor, which means laziness, sluggishness, no energy of mind, don't want to do anything, want, want to go to sleep. I've meditated enough, it's time to rest. That kind of mental inertia, just that very, that very great drowsiness of mind, is a very great hindrance. I can't, can't do anything as long as that enemy is powerful. Cannot penetrate at all. It's a very overpowering state of mind, the state of slothfulness. Perhaps there's, there's one animal which was very common in India during the monsoon, came out a lot, which to me was always the, the most clear comic manifestation of sloth and torpor. And I know the slugs, right? Just barely crawling along, right? And I used to get the feeling that that was a very uh, appropriate reflection of that state of mind, right? the mind that can barely arouse itself. It's a tremendous hindrance. It's a very powerful enemy, this enemy of slothfulness. It has to be dealt with. As long as it's not overcome, it's this tremendous barrier on the path. We just do not proceed, right? because there's no energy there. Okay, sense desire, anger, sloth and torpor, Restlessness and agitation. The mind that is always scattered and just flitting from object to object, can't sit still, very agitated, very worried, guilty, anxious, all unwholesome states of mind, all very great obstacles. And generally, agitation and remorse and restlessness comes 
when we reflect or when we think about all the bad things we've done in the past, right, it makes us very, very agitated. Or think about the good things we left undone. Oh, I should have done that. It makes the mind very, very restless. Not so skillful. It's a very disturbed state of mind and very difficult to see things clearly when restlessness is strong. And I'm sure everyone has experienced that, that hindrance, that enemy in the sitting, in, in the meditation practice. You're sitting for about 45 minutes and you just get tired. The mind does not want to sit anymore. It wants to get up and, and walk about. It starts getting very restless and right? very, very agitated. That state of mind has to be dealt with. As long as it's strong, as long as that enemy is powerful, it's, it's a tremendous hindrance for our development. And we have to deal with these enemies. The fifth great enemy is doubt. Right? Enlightenment was okay for the Buddha, but I'm not the Buddha and I can't do this. It's just not for me. Doubt about oneself, about one's capabilities. Doubt about the Dharma, about the path, about what it's all about. That kind of recurring doubt, that recurring questioning, skepticism about one's own capability <coughs> is just a, a tremendous blockage. And I've seen people who were so consumed with this kind of doubting mind that they could not do anything, right? It just completely stopped them on the path. Every time they would try to make an effort, these doubts would arise of, oh, I really can't do this. Right? And it just, it was, it was so powerful as to become a very, an insurmountable hindrance for them, right? Because they did not learn to deal with this doubt, with this enemy. These are the five big ones. Sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and agitation, and doubt. Sloth and torpor, laziness, sluggishness, drowsiness, the mind that doesn't want to do anything. We have to learn to deal with these hindrances, and they arise in everyone, either, either one or several or all of them. Right? They're a very common experience in everyone's lives, and they become very apparent as we begin the meditation, because then we're really seeing them, we're seeing them arise in full force. A simile has been given to describe the effect of these hindrances on the mind. And the simile is one of a pond of clear water. Okay, that's the mind. Consciousness is pure. This, this pond of clear water. Sense desire in the mind is like adding a lot of color, a lot of very beautiful colors to the water. Red and blue and green and all psychedelic <laughs> and very nice. But in that colored water, things become very obscured. Right? Cannot see clearly to the bottom, to the bottom of the pond or what's, or what's in the water. The clarity is obscured by the beautiful color that we've added to it. And that's exactly how sense desires work in the mind. Very pleasurable, very beautiful, they can be very obscuring, right? so we don't see things clearly. Anger is like 
some water which is boiling, right? A very hard boil, very turbulent, very disturbed, also cannot see things clearly. When water is boiling, you cannot see to the bottom of it, right? The disturbance caused by the, by the boiling prevents a clear vision. And anger does precisely that to the mind. Our mind begins to boil, and so we cannot see things clearly. Sloth and torpor is like this pond of water covered with moss, right? completely covered. There's no possible way of seeing anything, right? because the moss has just put a, a coating on the top of the water, cannot penetrate at all. When the mind is filled with sloth and torpor, laziness, drowsiness, it is impossible to penetrate into anything. All we want to do is go to sleep. Right? Restlessness and agitation is like this pond of water which is windswept, right? swept over by a very high wind, causing a lot of disturbance. In this windswept water, we also cannot see things clearly. All we can see is the surface agitation cannot penetrate. And it, it's just the same way with a restless mind. All we, can, all we can experience is that very surface agitation. It's very difficult to penetrate with insight into what's happening underneath. And the mind full of doubt is like very muddy water. This muddy water is just very, very cloudy, very murky, very difficult to see clearly what everything is all about. These are how the hindrances work in our minds, and we have all experienced them. Right? All experienced how they're very great hindrances and enemies and blockages to the development of, of our understanding. Okay, the first step has been undertaken. That is the recognition of who the enemies are. We're surrounded on this battlefield by a thousand enemies, and at least we've, we've pointed out the big enemy chiefs, right? If we deal with the chiefs, then all the others will be easy. We've recognized them. Sense desire and ill will and sloth and torpor and restlessness and agitation and doubt. How to deal with them now that, now that we know who they are, how to deal with them when they arise. There are different ways people have accumulated a lot of experience in dealing effectively and overcoming these enemies. And we can draw upon their experience for our own help, sort of reinforcements for us. The highest and most effective way of dealing with all the hindrances is mindfulness to be aware of them as they arise without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with them. Simply to be aware. Sense desire comes, being mindful of the fact that desire has come in the mind. Just watching it, not holding on to it, not taking it to be self. Desire, desire, desire. All things are impermanent. If we don't feed them, they arise and pass away very quickly. If we are mindful, we need do nothing else. Right? That is the most powerful weapon we have. Mindfulness has the power to overcome all these enemies. 
this kind of choiceless awareness, not suppressing it, not condemning it, not condemning oneself for having them, simply to be aware of each of these states of mind as they arise, not clinging, not condemning, not identifying with them. So they arise and pass away, and the mind remains undisturbed. Sometimes, though, we're overpowered, right? The mindfulness may still be weak, and it's very difficult to stay mindful when these enemies come. So there are other ways, other things we can do. A very big help in weakening the hold of sense desire on our mind is moderation in food and in sleep. Right? Overindulgence in eating and in sleeping very much reinforces that whole place of mind where sense desire is powerful. And by moderating our food and sleep, it very much, very much brings a clarity to the mind where we can see, where we can see quite clearly how these desires are working and we don't get so involved with them. Moderation brings a certain lightness of mind. It's a very big help. We don't get so involved in that, in that wallowing in sense pleasure when we are moderate in our food and sleep. For people who are very consumed by lust for sen sensual objects, <coughs> there are very special and powerful antidotes to that. It's not for everyone but it's for those in whom that enemy is very, very powerful. So we need a powerful counterforce. And by way of illustration of what that counterforce is, there's a story about a Thai, a monk in Thailand. who's was a very, very good teacher. He also happened to be a very handsome man. Right? And all the village women would come to the temple to listen to him, mostly because he was so handsome. Right? They weren't so interested in the Dharma. And it turns out that one of the people who were coming to, to listen to him was the daughter of one of the wealthy Chinese people in the community. Very beautiful. This beautiful Chinese girl. Right? And she used to come regularly to the temple to hear this to hear this teacher, who was very, very handsome. And she fell in love with him. And she went around telling everybody that she was gonna marry him. Okay? This went on for some weeks, but the monk, the monk remained completely uninvolved, right, and had no intentions at all of marrying this girl. Finally, the girl caught on that even though she would like to marry this, this guy, he was not having any part of it. So after some time, she went away. She left. She stopped coming back. What happened was that the teacher felt a little sad that she wasn't coming back. He saw in his own mind that even though outwardly he had remained very detached and uninvolved, there was this kind of craving or desire in his mind. Now, this is a very high teacher. Right? So what he did is not necessarily what we should do, but a possibility. He went to the charnel ground, you know, the place where they put the corpses, and he just lay down with the corpse for a week to reinforce his understanding 
of the nature of attachment to this body, which is going to end as a corpse anyway. That's our destiny. That's where we're heading. All of us. There's no way out of that predicament. As a way of overcoming that lust for the body, he went, he went and laid with this corpse as a reminder of just where that attachment is. Right? I'm not suggesting that we go out and hang out with corpses. However, that kind of reflection about the nature of the body is a very great help in dealing with sense desire when they become overpowering. Right? Just to remind ourselves that this body is very impermanent, very much subject to disease and decay and death. And that kind of reflection, it cools the mind out. Right? It uninvolves us to some degree, anyway, with this lust for pleasure, which is very impermanent. Okay, these are different ways of, of dealing with that enemy when it becomes very strong. Moderation, reflection on, on death. The highest, the highest way of dealing with it, though, is mindfulness. Simply being aware. Okay, anger. What to do with anger? Again, the, the best way of dealing with it is to be aware of it arising without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it as, oh, I'm angry. Anger is an impersonal mental factor. Not I, not self, not mine. Merely a quality of mind which arises and passes away. If we do not identify with it, then we're not feeding that anger and it comes and goes very quickly. Just observing it, not pushing it down, and not condemning it, and not condemning oneself for having it, merely to observe it. Oh, anger, 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 anger. You see, it just withers away. It has no strength at all to stay through the power of mindfulness, the power of awareness. Sometimes, though, the anger is so, is so <coughs> strong that we cannot stay mindful. It overpowers us. Right? I'm angry and I have a right to be angry because that guy did something to me and I'm going to get back at him and that kind of mind. Right? How to deal with it when it overpowers us, when we cannot stay aware, not stay mindful? There are two ways. One is to start cultivating, to start developing loving thought. Sending out, substituting for the anger, thoughts of love. Just generating and repeating any kind of expression of loving vibration, of loving thought. May all beings be happy, or may he be happy, and free of pain and suffering. Just putting the mind in a very loving place right, to extract it from that, that cauldron of anger. Loving-kindness is a very, very powerful force. It has a tremendous effect not only on oneself, but on the vibrations of everyone around us. It's a very powerful factor to cultivate, and it should be used. Right? It is the specific antidote to the factor of hatred or ill-will. 
And one can develop these thoughts of loving kindness in a very systematic and intensive way so that this factor of loving kindness gets very strong. Right? Sending out thoughts of love. That's, that's one way of dealing with anger. The other way is to understand, to really reflect upon the law of karma and the fact that our only true possessions is the accumulated force of our wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. That that's what we're going to inherit, the result of our own mind moments. Every moment of greed, hatred, or delusion brings back pain and suffering to us. Every moment of non-greed, of generosity, of non-hatred, of love, of non-delusion, of wisdom, brings back happiness. To reflect upon that law of karma and how we are creating our own destiny, just, just by our state of mind in the present moment, very much cools out that anger very quickly. No sense dwelling in anger when we realize that that very angry mind is going to be the cause of a lot of future suffering to us. And it also works, understanding the law of karma, by way of relating to people who are doing unskillful things out of ignorance. Right? Somebody does things, somebody does something which is not right or not just or not harmonious because they do not understand how this law of karma is working. They don't understand how they themselves are creating the seeds of future suffering to come back to them. So instead of reacting to their unwholesomeness, with anger, we, we respond with compassion. Right? They do not know what they're doing. They're acting out of ignorance. And ignorance which is going to be the cause of a lot of suffering. We do not have to add fire to that fire. Right? We, should, we should spread as much coolness as possible, as much compassion, really feeling for, for the ignorant actions which are being done which are going to be the cause of pain, and they're all done unknowingly. That's a much, a much more harmonious way of relating to unpleasant situations or people or events. And it's a very powerful way of eliminating this response of anger in our own mind. Understanding how karma works and how people, people are creating their future out of what they're doing in the moment. Again, the highest way of dealing with anger is mindfulness, to be aware. Sloth and torpor, what to do about that one? That's a difficult one. It's very interesting, when you're sitting and meditating and you feel the mind getting very drowsy, and you're sitting watching the breathing, just nodding off all the time. A very common state. If you can be mindful of that, mindful of the drowsiness, making the drowsiness the object of meditation, just trying to observe what's going on in that state. Drowsy, drowsy, drowsy. Really looking at it. One of two things may happen. <laughs> The second one, <laughs> is that you will experience this drowsiness as an impermanent state of mind, 
And just by watching it, you'll just see it. You'll see that state arising. And if the mindfulness is reasonably strong, you can see in a moment the vanishing of that drowsiness. Right? You're just watching drowsy, drowsy, drowsy. And then in a single instant, the mind becomes awake and alert and active. Right? You saw the arising and passing away of that mental factor of sloth and torpor. Through the power of mindfulness, through the power of awareness, all states are impermanent. If we do not identify with them, they lose their power to disturb the mind. Right? Oh, so the sleepiness comes. Instead of giving into it right away, instead of saying, oh, I'm sleeping now and I've done enough, I'm time to rest. Making the effort to really observe that state of mind, being very aware of it, not condemning it, not getting attached or involved with it, not identifying with it. The mind has the power to penetrate it. And from that state of slothfulness can arise in a moment a state of tremendous clarity. It's a very interesting experience, which is an indication of the power of mindfulness. Okay, supposing though that we just cannot be mindful of it, it's too strong, and the mindfulness is still weak. There are other, other things we can do to deal with it. One is to change posture. If you're sitting and you're feeling very drowsy and lazy, get up and do the walking meditation. And the walking can be done at any speed. Right? Here we're practicing it very slowly. You can walk very quickly and be mindful. This change of posture arouses energy in the system. And it's a very great help in overcoming this factor. <coughs> Another thing to do is to look at a light, whether an electric light or the sun or the moon or a star. Just really doing the concentration exercise on light. Right? It's a very arousing, awakening, awakening state of mind. The light makes us wakeful. Another thing to do is to be in the open. Sometimes when you're sitting in a room and meditating and feeling very heavy and drowsy, by going outside, a whole new wave of energy comes. Right? Being in the open is a very great help in dealing with that factor. All these are things to do, right? Not simply to have in the mind as a list of, of remedies, but when these states, when all these enemies come, all of these remedies are something to put into practice, to deal with them. Okay, restlessness and agitation. The specific antidote for that state of mind is concentration. Concentration is the opposite of a restless mind. So when we feel ourselves in this state of, of agitation, just then to go back to the breathing, to stay only on the breathing, right? developing the samadhi, developing the one-pointedness. It's a very tranquilizing factor. It makes the mind very calm, very tranquil, very easy, very concentrated. It can overcome this hindrance <coughs> of agitation. Another way of dealing with it is generally restlessness and agitation comes out of some kind of remorse, right? about something. We're not so happy about what we did or about what we didn't do. And that kind of guilt trip is not very skillful because the action is done already. 
There's nothing to be guilty about. A state, a kind of reflection that tends to overcome that is just to reflect upon the good things that one has done right, in the past. All the good actions, the meditation one has done, the acts of generosity, of helping, of compassion, of love. That kind of reflection just, it makes the mind light. It fills the mind with rapture and happiness and joy. And it's a way of getting out of this restless and agitated state. It's a skillful practice. It's a skillful means. It's not the end in itself. It's just a way of dealing on, on one level with that enemy of restlessness. But again, the most liberating way of overcoming that enemy is through mindfulness. When restlessness comes, to be aware of it, to face it fully, not to try to avoid it, to really confront what a restless, a restless mind means. Just restless, 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 not identifying with it, not condemning it, not clinging to it, to watch it come and go. And every moment or every time we see the impermanence of it strengthens our mind in the future to deal with it in a very balanced way. So when it comes again, we don't immediately run off to the movies. Right? Oh, restlessness has come again. We're not identifying with it, so it comes and goes quickly. It's through mindfulness that we develop insight into its nature. And through that insight, we develop that strength to remain balanced right? with all of these hindrances. They come and they go, and the mind stays peaceful. Doubt. Doubt in the beginning is a very useful state of mind. We should be questioning what we're doing. It's not so helpful to, to accept things blindly. And in fact, the Buddha said in one very famous discourse, do not accept anything. Not because I say it, or your teachers say it, or your parents say it, or society says it. Don't believe anything at all. Test everything for yourself and see in your own mind whether a particular practice cultivates greed and hatred and delusion, which is unskillful, or whether it cultivates love and generosity and wisdom. When you know from your own experience that something is useful and skillful and good, that's when it should be accepted, based on our own experience of it. So in the beginning, a kind of questioning is very appropriate. But once we have seen that something is valuable, that something is skillful, that something is conducive to awareness and openness and receptivity <coughs> and love and understanding, so then we should put doubts aside because at that point they become a great hindrance. And again, the way to deal with them on the level of insight is to be aware. Oh, doubting mind. Doubt is not self and it's not I and it's not mine. It's an impersonal mental factor. It arises and passes away. If we don't identify with it, if we don't feed that doubt, it loses all its power to disturb us. If we cannot overcome the doubt in that way through insight, through mindfulness, it's very good and helpful to seek intellectual clarification, right? to understand why we're doing what we're doing on the intellectual conceptual level. It's a very big help in dealing with these doubts as they arise. Understanding 
the Four Noble Truths, understanding the importance of mindfulness, of awareness, having a very clear conceptual picture of what the whole spiritual path is about, is a very powerful aid in overcoming doubt. These are the big enemies. They can be dealt with, and they can be overcome. And as the mind develops, as the mindfulness, as the concentration, as the wisdom develop, these five hindrances become weaker and weaker and weaker, and they lose their power to disturb our mind. But they have to be faced. They're not overcome by wishful thinking or by praying, let anger be gone, or let, let sense desire be gone. They, come through a, they are overcome through a certain effort that we have to make. One general advice that was given by the Buddha, which is a help in all situations, he very much stressed association with the wise. When you're hanging out with very restless, agitated, lustful, angry, slothful people. <laughs> it very much, and doubtful, right, it very much sets off sympathetic vibrations within ourselves, and we get into that place too. When you're with very mindful, concentrated people, you will, you will experience that automatically mindfulness and concentration arise. Right? In the beginning, it is a very big help to associate to associate with the wise, to associate with mindful people, with sangha, with, with other people who are walking on the path towards illumination, towards freedom. It's a very big support. And it's very much like if you plant a little tree right, in the ground, in the beginning you have to be very careful of it. You have to water it and maybe put a fence about it so animals don't eat it. Take very good care, tend it. As the tree gets bigger and it grows into a very big tree, it doesn't need your care at all. It doesn't have to be watered and it doesn't have to be fenced in. It's very strong. Our mind is just in that same way. In the beginning, these factors of, of mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and devotion, they're weak. They have to be tended very carefully or the, the enemies will overpower them. We have to build our little fence which means really being very aware, very mindful, associating with, with wise people. When these factors are strong within us, they, they are unconquerable. Right? The enemies have no power whatsoever. And in fact, all the five spiritual faculties of mindfulness, concentration, energy, wisdom, wisdom and faith or devotion, in the beginning, they are called spiritual faculties, which means spiritual friends. At different periods of development, their name changes to spiritual powers, because at that time, they become unconquerable. They become so strong in our mind that there is no force in the world which can overcome them. That's what we're striving for, right? The development of those states of mind. It's possible. As these hindrances, as these enemies come up, if we deal with them, they get weaker and weaker and weaker until our mind is no longer disturbed by those forces. Many people have achieved that kind of balance of mind. And it's possible for everyone. 
It just takes a certain effort, a certain persistence. Any questions? By putting on, you talk about mindfulness, letting it all become go by is the best way. But if you see, if you're putting so much power in the enemies from the beginning by saying, oh, the enemies, you know, it's supposed to be the empty, isn't that stopping yourself? Even though you might get a good beginning, you're just gonna, not going to, you know. I don't understand exactly. <coughs> talking about the enemies right. and what to do about the enemies. Right. But supposedly, the, are the, aren't these enemies also empty? Right. So, by not re- by uh, expressing their form, or, or maybe forgetting their emptiness? Okay, that, no, that's, that's, what, that's what's meant by saying that the most effective way of dealing with them is through mindfulness and, and not identifying. Empty means empty of self. It doesn't mean that they're not there. Still being mindful of them. Right. Emptiness does not mean non-existence. It means emptiness of self. The fact that, that in these mental processes, there is no self, they're not I. That's what emptiness means. Well, if you sit and observe, you'll see. Right? We, through mindfulness and through not identifying with them, that is exactly the best way of dealing with them, because that is seeing their empty nature. Sometimes people think, you know, a lot has been said about form is emptiness and emptiness is form and this is emptiness and this is emptiness and people take it to mean that things aren't there. And that's when a Zen master will come and hit you over the head with a stick. You know, everything's empty, but it hurts. (laughs) Because emptiness does not mean that things are not there. It means that they are empty of self, right? They're not I and they're not mine. Let's, I mean, all I can think of is like, Rinpo, you know, the example of Rinpoche drinking. Like, like, he's a very mindful man. Maybe, you know, or I don't know. But how, how, do, you, how do I uh, look at the, his mindfulness in that respect? The same way you're talking. Right. If mindfulness is there, then the mindfulness is there. And there is no clinging and no condemning and no identifying. If, if the mindfulness is not there, there is clinging and condemning and identifying. Right? It does not depend upon the personality, it depends upon the state of mind. That's the, that's the reference back from all actions, right? the state of mind involved in doing them. Joseph, I know in some situations when dealing with these five aspects of the hindrances, there's some where, especially with anger and, and uh, sloth, where I know that I make a subliminal statement to myself, identifying myself with that hindrance. Sure. What you, is what you're saying that mindfulness, increased mindfulness, will, in a sense, slow time down enough so that we can hear ourselves making that continual identification. Right. Then, as with intending, right. we have the choice as to whether to identify... There's no choice. Anger, if you're mindful at that level, there's no possibility that you can identify with them. I mean, <laughs> anger is very unpleasant. If you're aware of it, right, if you're really mindful, the mind is not going to get involved in it. I find myself with anger specifically of being at a choice point at which 
very quickly what goes through my head is if I do this, it's just gonna I'm gonna just have to clean it up anyway. You know, if I throw this uh, this bowl of jello, I'm gonna have to just clean it up anyway. Number one. Number two is if you don't, you're gonna have to stay on fire. On fire with your anchor. Yeah. But throwing it out is the you know the ridding of oneself. But there's a third alternative though. And that is not throwing the bowl of jello and not staying burning up, but really just observing the anger. Not suppressing it and not expressing it, but just seeing it, right? And not taking it to be self. And that's a very cool state. And you can, when the mindfulness is strong, you can just see the seeds of anger coming and you can, you can remember past, past responses in which those seeds get stronger and stronger and stronger until they're expressed. When the mindfulness is strong, you see those seeds and you pick them up immediately. Oh, anger, anger. And it, it just withers away. On some level, what you've just said it is the gift of this path, because in my own personal Western training experience, I've only been given the two right. alternatives. Right, right, That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know how pervasive that is or whether that's a personal thing. I think it's pretty pervasive. People think it either has to be suppressed or expressed in action. And there's a whole other Right. Which is very cool and peaceful. Um, on, uh, I've got two things. One's on doubt. And, um, and you said, like, from your own experience of finding out what is true, you know, right. or quote, good, right. you know, you can, um, you can get rid of doubt. But how does that, that what I just said, become an obstacle? Could you explain because I think it's other people sit there in, in, in a religion or something, you know, that are totally off the wall, they'll sit there and say, aha, this is true, this is good, and then they stick to that. Okay. The factor which overcomes doubt is faith. And that's that's the, the, the real antidote to doubt. When you have strong faith in something, then doubts don't arise. That's what happens in a lot of people. Faith is a spiritual faculty. It's an important factor to cultivate. It has to be in balance with wisdom, right? The whole, the whole spiritual path is a balancing act. It's developing different spiritual qualities and balancing them, so the mind is perfectly poised. Faith has to be balanced by wisdom, by understanding, otherwise it becomes very blind, right? And it becomes an obstacle. That spiritual faculty itself becomes a hindrance if it's not balanced. So faith is very useful in overcoming doubt but we have to cultivate the understanding about what it's all about through the, through the wisdom faculty. Right? And in that wisdom, there's no chance of, of this sort of blind devotion. Okay. And the next one is about anger. When he was talking about that, I was just thinking about you know, my own anger. And you can sit there, you can be aware of anger. You can sit there and even laugh at it because it's usually under some really stupid circumstance, like you're mad at somebody for not fitting up with your expectations. Right. You realize that you can sit there and watch yourself and you're in f your fists are made and everything else and you say, boy, is it stupid, I'm going to haul off and hit somebody or something like yeah. that, you know. Still, you're mindful. Right. It's coming up. Right. But your actions of your body, you know. Right. Ang states of mind very much affect the body. When you're angry, your body gets very tense. Right. right? The, the quicker you pick up the anger, the less effect it has on the body. Right. If you can catch the anger right at the very beginning. When the mindfulness is sharp, the mind is picking up both mental and physical phenomena in the instant it arises. In other words, 
Now, usually when we're meditating, maybe a couple of minutes into a thought is when we're aware that we're thinking. Right? When the mindfulness is developed, the first instant of the first syllable of the first word, and you're aware. Just... And it's the same way with emotions. With, with strong mindfulness, as soon as they arise, you're aware of it. And then it does not have much chance to affect the body. So it's that whole, that whole development of very sharp mindfulness. When you have a sensation, when do you know when to just observe it, when to act on it? Say I'm sitting here and I'm feeling pain, you know, observing it. Um, when do I go and do something about it? Or okay, there, there's no rule, right? The only rule is that whatever one does, to do it mindfully. So if you're sitting and observing the pain, one way of, of dealing with that is just to resolve to get to the end of that pain. I am not going to move, right? Pain does not kill, right? even though it feels like it. In, in India, at the meditation courses, they had something called vow hours, right? You, you take the vow that you are not going to move for that hour. And those last 15 minutes, at times, <laughs> meant the mind silently is screaming, right? <laughs> but if you have taken that resolution with a certain seriousness, you just sit through it, right? And it's very interesting because you, you, it's a way of getting over the fear of pain. It's just a flow of unpleasant sensation, right? Also not I and not self, it's just phenomena happening. And with sufficient penetration of mind, you can get into it, right? You can really break up the mass of it and see it just as a flow. That's one way of dealing with it. Another way is to change position, but to do it all mindfully to be aware of the pain, of the intention to, to change position, of the changing position, right? I, I'm talking about more internal pain that doesn't have to do with sitting, say, right. rebellion. You know. Sure. But do you just sit with it or do you... Also, there are, there, are, there are both ways. One can just be with what's happening or one can take appropriate remedies. You know, we're not throwing out the intellectual level of mind, the whole, our whole educational training. It's all to be used when appropriate. We want to develop that space of mind where we're hanging out in peace and silence and using the intellectual level when needed, rather than staying in this constant commentary on things, right, and rarely having that peace and silence. So we, sh we should use our, our knowledge and our understanding in a very mundane way. We should use it when appropriate. It's like the example given in India, they, the place we were staying, there was an elephant in town, you know? <laughs> and often we'd be walking into the town doing very mindful, mindful walking, you know, lifting, you know, putting. But when we became aware of the elephant coming the other direction, we got out of the way. <laughs> you know, we just didn't say, oh, seeing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> When elephants come, <laughs> move. <laughs> That's a very quick, you know, it's a, it's a very quick reversion to the whole intellectual level, the thought level, and using it. Uh, I know that, uh, that I can't have a thought and think having a thought at the same time. I either do one or the other. You know what I mean? You mean having a thought and being aware that you're thinking? Well, I can... Yeah, well, I, when I'm aware of it, then it, then it will go away. Often it does. But I can't get aware of it until it's finished. 
As the as the mindfulness as the mindfulness grows, you will you will pick up the arising of the thought rather than the vanishing. Right. It's all a question of how strongly cultivated is that mental factor of mindfulness. Right? When, when it's very sharp, it's picking up the arising and passing away of each object very, very distinctly. Well, can you do, can you do two things with your mind? Seeing it arising and seeing it passing when you're in it, when you're it. Mindfulness is a mental factor which can arise concurrently with consciousness and the object. In other words, there are three things going on. There's the knowing, the object, and this whole group of mental factors determining how the consciousness relates to the object. Right? If there's greed in the mind, consciousness sticks to the object. If there's mindfulness, it remembers what the object is. And all the different mental factors have different functions. They arise together. Right? Mindfulness, consciousness, and the object arise in the moment. Um, when I'm upset, uh, I can at some point or other say upset and go through and recognize the pictures that are making me upset. And then the whole thing will go away. But what I wonder about, maybe it's useless wondering, is, uh, is I, cut, I may have cut it off prematurely and it's only going to come back and run its course. It's okay. If it comes... The upset, same thing later on. I just pushed it on the carpet. That's because... Really, the path of mindfulness is not to analyze the causes of what made one upset, but the state of upsetness itself. Yeah. The causes are irrelevant. Yeah, no. you know? If it comes back, to be aware of it again. Right? And all of these hindrances of mind are going to keep coming back for quite a while. Each time they're dealt with mindfully, they have less and less power to disturb the mind. Oh, upset again. You know, you've seen it so many times. <laughs> that it just loses its, loses its force. And that happens so frequently, in, especially in, in meditation. You see the same reel run over and over and over again. After a while, you really stop identifying with it. Right? Well, I guess the concept in my mind is that, I've, that I have pushed things. Uh, when I've gotten upset, I haven't recognized them, and I pushed them away, and I haven't expressed like I haven't cried. Well, now I'm at the point where I let my feelings come out. But then if I'm going to also be mindful... It's okay, you can, you can cry mindfully. <laughs> you know, if crying is what's happening, be aware that, that crying is happening. Okay. <laughs> we don't, right, we don't want to cling to anything. Not to the upsetness, not to the crying, not to the relief, just to watch the flow. Whatever it is that's happening, not trying to direct it, right? If there's upsetness, be aware of it. If there's a response to the upsetness, to be aware of it. Just to be with the unfolding with mindfulness. The alternative is sleep. That's all. The alternative to being aware is to being in ignorance. To be doing the same things unknowingly. It's not a very skillful alternative, right? Because it just perpetuates all our conditioning of greed, hatred, and delusion. So all mindfulness means is not any particular course of action, but simply to be aware of what it is that one is doing. Okay, um, if we look at meditation as kind of uh, adding perspective to our actions by kind of sitting back and seeing them as arising and passing away. Uh, now some of those actions affected other people and they see us as being the actors and, you know, 
Um, now, during meditation, I think about something I did that hurt someone, and you say not to be guilty. But the guilt is the first step to um, taking responsibility and acting on the responsibility to somehow redress the situation. Okay. Right. Guilt contributes nothing. You can be aware of having done something wrong, motivated to redress the situation through understanding, through wisdom, through insight into the fact that something unskillful was done and it's, it's good to, to remedy the situation. All that can be done without guilt. Guilt is just, it's useless remorse over an act that's already done. There's no way of undoing that particular act. There's a way of acting appropriately in the present moment. Right, right. But that can all be done through, through understanding rather than through this guilt trip, which it serves no purpose. It just is a dragging force in the mind. Fear is an expression of aversion, right? Of, of in some way, we don't like the situation. Right? We're, we're in a dangerous situation or an unpleasant one. And because of our aversion towards it and our strong attachment to self, you know, which may feel threatened, so we feel fear. Fear itself can be made the object of meditation because fear is not I and it's not mine. It's a mental state only. It comes and it goes. We can observe that fear and just fearing, 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 not identifying with it, and that very much weakens it. By observing fear does not mean subjecting oneself to unnecessary danger. Right? It doesn't mean that we put ourselves into, into fearful situations and, and remain there. It means dealing appropriately with each situation, but recognizing and being aware of that mental state when it arises. The Buddha said, pardon? Right, you move out of the way. Quickly? Quickly, right. Always appropriate action is to be done, but always to be done mindfully, to be done aware of what one is doing. The Buddha said that in dealing with fear, He was meditating sometime before his enlightenment in some cemetery or something. In a very fearful place, right? Lots of spirits and ghosts and whatever happens in cemeteries. And he said that he resolved that in whatever posture the fear arose, to face it in that posture, which means not to try avoiding looking at the fear. Right? If you're sitting down and fear comes, to really look at it. Or if you're standing and fear comes, to really observe it. To see what's involved in that state of mind without identifying with it. It's a very beautiful place to get over, to get over fear. It's a, very, it's a very heavy state of mind to be dwelling in. And the best way is to observe it. <laughs> We're talking about meditation, which is a very clean, put in quotes, a very clean situation environment. And what I'm wondering about, and this is a question that I have, is that I've got three children. The eldest is about four and a half, and she at times shows an incredible mindfulness about her action. Is there anything that you can say to me that can help me to support that mindfulness other than 
just becoming obviously more mindful myself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I guess the restlessness and worry section. Uh, there's there's anxiety about the future. I wonder if you speak about you know dealing with that in ways other than being mindful. <laughs> okay, what, of course being mindful is, is the answer, right? Being mindful of the anxiety. Another handle on that is to really examine the nature of time. Right? Time is a concept. Future and past are concepts. They're projections of a certain class of thoughts which are happening in the present. Right? The future is just this, this happening in the moment which we have labeled future. But they're thoughts happening right now. Right? We've taken this whole class of thoughts and sort of thrown it out there as if the out there really exists. But what's happening is a whole movement of the mind right now. To understand that Really, all there is is an unfolding of present moments. Very much removes the burden of anxiety about the future. It does not mean that one does not plan or, or deal with one's life, but to do it all with the understanding that it is all happening now. Right? The planning is, a, is an activity of mind in the present moment. And that kind of grounding in the present, just, it just takes off this huge burden that we carry around with us. I don't know if you can hear that at all. Time is a very powerful concept which we're very strongly conditioned in to believe in and to, to be anxious about. But really examining the nature of it, the conceptual nature, right? A recommendation which you'll need a great deal of time <laughs> to do, but which had a very powerful effect on me. There's one masterpiece of a book all about time. And it's A Remembrance of Things Past by Proust. And it's a huge book. It's like several thousand pages, seven volumes. And the whole, he, it was like a Satori experience he had, right? And the culmination of it, which comes in the last 50 pages, is that the past is present. Right? The past is happening right now. Having gone through the first 1,900 pages, uh, for myself anyway, it just put my mind in that place where when he, when he sprung the, the powerful experience, like I really saw clearly what he was talking about, having gone through you know, all the preceding, the preceding build-up. If you have the time to read 2,000 pages, <laughs> it might be interesting. But it all has to do with just understanding that that the past and future are right now. They're, they're concepts about, about thoughts and emotions which are happening in the present moment. And, and getting, getting an insight into that very much frees the mind from that kind of anxiety. But a more fundamental way is to look at the anxiety, right? just to be mindful of it. said that like you could uh, elevate sense desire that usually takes the form of sex to communication. It doesn't involve desire. 
Did you elaborate? Those words don't sound familiar to me. <laughs> Could you paraphrase again? That when, like, since desire takes the form of sex with sexual partner or people, um, you can eliminate the desirous aspect by feeling that this, these acts are communication. I think you said actually get into the experience now. And, uh, not be hung up on the desire. Really. Right. I, I, I don't really uh, well, I, tune it. The original question I ask you is, is, that, is there sex without desire? Right. And that's like... And a, what did I say? As I recall what I said, is that if there's desire, there's desire. And if there isn't desire, there isn't desire. <laughs> you know, and it all depends upon the state of mind involved. And it all comes down to experiencing what's happening non-conceptually. Right? A lot of us in sex, and as in everything else, create a whole, a whole uh, image of ourselves, of what we're doing, a whole conceptual realm having nothing to do with the experience, right? the actual experience of what's happening. If we're just experiencing fully, moment to moment to moment, of any of the sense pleasures, that's, that's all that's needed. It's not that we suppress sense pleasure, right? It's that we give up our attachment to them. Lots of pleasurable things happen. We experience pleasant sights and pleasant touch and not to cling to it, to experience them fully without, without getting involved in a whole conceptual superstructure about it. Right? And that is a very high kind of communication. Oh, so like if you don't attach, if you, desire is mostly conceptual and an attachment, and it's not the actual taking pleasure in it, the pleasurable feeling. No, it's the attachment to, to it. <laughs> okay, let's, let's cultivate non-attachment. <laughs> we'll do the walking meditation for about 20 minutes. Be aware of the intention to get up and the getting up and the intention to begin walking and the walking. Be aware of thoughts as they arise. Okay, we start out with the breathing, either the rising, falling, or the in-out breath. Being aware of sensations when they become predominant. Being aware of thoughts, of the fact that we're thinking, not getting involved in the content with them, but aware that thinking is going on. Aware of whatever intentions arise in the mind to straighten the back or shift position or swallow. Noticing the intention before the act. Also, whenever any of these hindrances arise, whether it's desire or anger or restlessness or sloth or doubt, to make them objects of meditation. That is to train the mindfulness onto these mental factors, to observe them without identifying with them, without clinging, without condemning to observe those states of mind arising and passing away. When none of these things are predominant, again to go back to the breathing, which is the primary object. It will sit for about half an hour, tending to open the mind, the eyes, opening the eyes, 
intending to shift position, shifting position. Stay mindful of everything you're doing. Let me remind you about the papers. Please bring in Thursday. The papers, you should indicate what kind of evaluation you want, whether a pass-fail or a letter grade or whichever kind is a yeah. Next time. We're going to do an eating meditation. So, so you should bring something. help in the beginning. Don't get too involved in it. I don't mind. If it's unnecessary, if it's an obstacle, it's unnecessary. The important thing is the awareness, right? So if you can stay mindful without it, it's okay. And it falls away anyway in time. Really the idea is to be more and more mindful uh, of the entire flow. In other words, in the beginning it's like three sections of up, forward, down. But really in, in just the up movement, it's a continuous flow, right? And the entire forward you're picking up just many, many instants of noticing, right? And that's, that's the continuing instruction, to be aware on a finer and finer level of that flow of movement. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.